from the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio. This is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yarashevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, Manager of Education and Community Engagement. We are so glad you could join us. This podcast navigates issues that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences and as we discuss these often avoided topics. We are thrilled today to have the rare opportunity for a fully in-person podcast recording as we welcome composer Wang Ji to our studio here in Canton. A native of Shanghai, China, she moved to the United States to study at Manhattan School of Music and still resides in New York City to this day. She also holds an artist's diploma from the Curtis Institute of Music, where she studied with noted American composer Richard Daniel Poor. She is here with us this week to hear the Canton Symphony perform her symphonic overture, America the Beautiful, an absolute barn burner of a piece based on the patriotic hymn and featuring a fugue subject inspired by the silhouette of Pikes Peak in Colorado. Unsurprisingly, when not composing, she is an avid hiker and rock climber. Wang Ji, what a pleasure to have you with us today. Welcome to Orchestrating Change. Thank you. Wow. Uh, what a pleasure to be here. And uh, just checking, we're breathing the air in the same room yes. here. Yeah. Yes, we are. Isn't that this exciting? is awesome. <laughs> Can you just tell us a little bit about you and how you grew up and, and, and just who you are as a person? Sure. Um, I actually, I grew up uh, in a very cosmopolitan uh culture because uh, Shanghai is unlike any other city in mm -hmm. China. And so I happen to have lots of uh, people around me who were musicians at the highest caliber. Um, so just to give you a few names, you know, I've been mentored privately uh, by the former president of the Shanghai Conservatory of Music since I was four years old. Wow. I was one of the six of his original composition slash piano studio, uh, the first year he returned from Germany. He was one of the first musicians that was sent to Germany yeah. to study classical music, composition and piano. And then he returned to China to head the Shanghai Conservatory Department uh, of Composition in 1983, I believe. Wow. Um, and then 1984, I entered his studio. And he mentored me throughout my 14 years of journey until I enrolled uh, at the Shanghai Conservatory of Music in the composition department. And then a year and a half later, I moved to New York on a scholarship from Manhattan School. Now that's the mentoring part. Mm -hmm. and, and then I also grew up in a relatively musical family. And my mom was, when my mom was pregnant with me, she was summoned, she says, she was summoned to teach music classes because her school 
needed a music teacher,、oh. and because she was married to my dad, everybody just assumed that she knew how to play the piano. <laughs> so, so I I was basically listening to her just banging on the piano, you know, very random like Schoenbergian stuff. <laughs> since since I was in her womb, and and my father、uh, was a music director、uh, mm. and a conductor and composer. For a large arts institution, it's actually it's it's serving at least as many people as the Lincoln Center serves,、wow. but it's in a much much smaller building and it's a multidisciplinary. It's all、mm. kinds of artistic domain, and he was the music director,、mm. uh, composer, and conductor. He、uh, he was、uh, kind of the people's musician,、mm. you know, and he was very charismatic, and you know, he had like a full head of Natural curly hair, which、oh. was very unusual,、mm-hmm. and so people just saw him and、uh, as the the natural leader for this art form. So in his district, which was、uh, one of the biggest district in Shanghai,、uh, industry, military,、um, import export,、uh, agriculture, you name it,、mm-hmm. um, education, of course.、Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was kind of the ambassador. Between、uh, music of all kinds、yeah. and the,、uh, the the everybody who can be involved、wow. in music making. Wow, that's so cool! What a fun! I've been to Shanghai before,、um, and it is the so many people. It's the such a big, crazy, wild city, and I was. I would look out of the hotel and see the cars not hitting each other magically, and I was like, "How is not? Every, how is everyone just not crashing into each other?" But it's so cool that you were able to grow up there in that city. It seems like a really cool place to be, and there's a lot of yeah, lots of stuff happening in that city. And it's almost to give you a a scale comparison is the Shanghai population.、Mm-hmm. Just in Shanghai、mm-hmm. is the same as the entire population in the United States, perhaps more. Yeah, and so to be wow to、yeah. be able、That's、to insane. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> so for someone to be selected, yeah, like me、uh, and、uh, some of my peers at、yeah. the time to be selected as one of the very few who could go to music school to、yeah. study Western classical music. Out of a population of you know 130 million or something like that,、yeah. um, just to give you a sense yeah, of the, the 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 brutalness of this process. Wow, that yeah, wow, that's incredible. <laughs> Extraordinary circumstances had to, and and you and so most of them are out of control. Yeah, with、wow. a lot of people. Wow,、right? that's. That is truly wild. It's hard, to, it's hard to put that, like, think about that and put that and in perspective. I, I consider myself, and that also speaks to the influence of my father,、um, mm. my late father.、Um, you know, he was he was kind of just he he was just like a magician. He could <laughs> convince anybody to do anything. So he would he would put me into Dr. Yang Liqing's studio,、um, just by I don't know what strings he pulled or what he said or whatever,、um, but he made that happen and. Dr. Yang was、um, willing to take me. It's a mutual selection.、Wow. You know,、uh, wow. as a conductor, I know that it's a good trait to have to never take no for an answer. <laughs> oh wow!、It's, I have stories. If, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. No, I've I've、uh, done a lot of cool things in my career simply by not taking no for an answer. Just push. Yeah. Yeah. So 
you started, I guess when you started at the age of four, you were studying both piano and composition right away. Not knowingly. Not knowingly. Okay, yes. tell us about that. Well, um, you know, I believe uh, most of the teaching and the influence between interpersonal influence are nonverbal. Um, verbally, what was delivered to me were piano lessons and musicianship. And every once in a while, some oral skills, some ear training, some, you know, whatever. Uh, but it's the way my teacher was that was the most influential. And he was both a accomplished pianist, very musical, and but was also one of those composers that just had so much feelings and uh, insights about classical music. You know, I just remember, and he had such a humorous and warm way of delivering mm -hmm. his observations, and he never repeated himself. He was always developing these insights and refreshed views of the repertoire. Um, you know, I remember he was he was talking about harpsichord. He was like, harpsichord, mm. it was like skeletons dancing on the metal roof that's the sound and i had no idea what a harpsichord sounds like i was that's learning pretty, Bach. that's a pretty good <laughs> i love that about a harpsichord <laughs> i and love that so yeah. much he would giggle and after he said that he would giggle himself and i'm like oh i'll never forget that see it's yeah. 40 something years later yeah. i still remember that wow this, this is a harpsichord <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. So when did you do uh, officially, you said you 14 is when you really started doing composition? Actually, I started, so my dad uh, was a people's musician. Mm -hmm. And he lived and at a time where, you know, the, the political environment was such, was so saturated mm. that he was... Um, required to compose a lot of propaganda music. Also because he was director of choruses and he uh, curated performance in the military, in the uh, you know, agriculture industry and all of those yeah. uh, sectors. So he was trained as a composer as well. Mm. So he wrote a lot of the stuff that he was supposed to compose and a lot of them of course, carried words and carried messages of the party and of the government. Mm, yeah. And when he came home and he would make sure that I would never go near those music mm. that he composed. And uh, so his story was actually quite tragic yeah. because in a matter of a decade, a little more than a decade, after he had achieved tremendous influence in the art scene, he started a youth orchestra. He put an instrument in anybody who wanted to play instrument. He was able to sh put a busload of the best music teacher from Shanghai Conservatory to teach a Sunday music program. And uh, he sponsored kids who could not afford to come to the music program. And uh, it was such a big success. But then the corruption got to him and his artistic um, instincts just didn't get flourished in this kind of work for whatever reason. It's too complicated to, yeah. to unfold here. But what I learned from him is that he would come home and he would say, you copy Bach. So I was copying Bach's music mm. 
I was if I was practicing a piece by Bach, I was copying it as well. Um, and he loved Debussy, and he would come home and he would play Debussy on the piano. And so um, my music education was very uh, mindfully uh, curated by my father to stay away from propaganda. Mm. So that was kind of my first lesson in music, is that if I could keep my eyes on the ball, and the ball is the art form itself, and his life story is a cautionary tale for me, is that if I were to focus on the stuff that dresses music up, I might suffer his consequences. So this is kind of my internal dialogue that goes on quite a bit mm. uh, in my in my career wow. and in how I pursue my career wow. as well. Wow, that's really interesting. Amazing, yeah. That's really, really interesting. That's something I feel like is such... Um, I don't think Americans can never really understand a lot of what you just said. Like, it's really hard to comprehend that to me because, you know, just a very different world, different space, different way of, of, of community happening. And I think that that's really interesting that you, because, and like looking at your, your music now and your bio and the way that you're on social media and your portrayal, like, you, I think um, you say um, you're like part tar- cartoon character, right? Like you, you're so individual. Like you're one of the most, just by like looking at you, you feel like one of the most individual people oh, I've you. ever, like you're just, and I feel like that story that you just tell, told kind of is indicative of why that is. Like you're such an individual and I think that that's really cool. And your music is so individual and um, Thank you. Yeah, it's I, I you know when thinking about composing and the choices you make when you're composing, um, I, I'd love to know like after that, th- just after that story, how you think about composition and and when you're now that you've matured in your composition, like what is it that you think about? Like what is the important thing to you when you're like I'm gonna now compose something? What what are you thinking about? Mm. Wow. Um. This this is this question is so fertile. I, I feel like I feel like I need you know a few years just to <laughs> just to uh, be able to answer it in a meaningful way. Uh, but I think and I know this uh, because I'm a living proof of that. I I know that music um, and especially music without words mm. is the closest metaphor that we have to the human condition. Mm. Um, so, for example, it, it, it's like when, when I think about creating something, I'm thinking about uh, I'm sending all these sound waves out to the audience. And there's, you know, it doesn't matter how hard I send. If the audience is not there to receive it, you know, mm. it, it doesn't happen. Just, yeah. So 50% of the music making process happens in our audiences mm. from our audiences. Okay, it doesn't matter that you have the best intention in the world if what you send out there the audience's body is not responding in a way that you designed it to respond then it didn't happen. It didn't happen. Wow. Um so so 50% um and I I if I say this to some of my students <laughs> which I do sometimes <laughs> They look at me like I'm an <laughs> alien. <laughs> but, but 
I I come to this knowledge because my own my I I regard my own body as an instrument, not just an instrument of creativity, but also an instrument of uh, I am a musician. I'm also an audience member. Mm. I've I've been going to concerts since I was I don't even know four <laughs> years old, yeah. you know, um, and I, I I went to many 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 concerts, and um, sound waves. Are and and vibrations are something that uh, we all share as our body. Our body is constantly in motion, and the reason why it is in motion is that the cells are vibrating, the energies are vibrating. You know, our brain is alive, the body is alive, because there's all these frequencies and it's all these vibrations. So when I think about composing, and this is a long time coming.、Um, Is that I'm creating these、uh, sonic、um, objects,、mm. however you want to call it, right? And that,、uh, and by whatever design, and I think of it as an alchemy of frequencies and vibrations, and I send it out there to the people through the musicians' musicianship and the rehearsal and all the thousands of hours of their. Effort and practice to hone their craft. All of these people, the entire village shows up, and then eventually, you know, it reaches the audience's bodies. Th- this is the part I think most people、uh, are not on the same page with me. This is a extremely personal and physical because we're reaching inside of their body,、mm. and bodies are sacred. Only surgeons can do that. And very, very intimate people in our lives get to touch and to touch our body,、mm. and in this, in this very intimate and very, very personal way. Wow! So、um, the closest parallel I've found is actually food. Because、mm. so yeah. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're literally,、yeah. you know, it's like breathing, right? Breathing、mm. is something we all share, but food is is known and seen as、uh-huh. kind of like a individualized experience. But food goes inside your body.、Mm-hmm. It's very personal. It does things.、Mm. It does things. And so, what we feed our audiences, the nutrition that we're able to deliver,、yeah. the sensations, and all of it—it's not just one or two things. It's the whole thing. It matters to their soul because、yeah. this is this is how their unconscious is built. That's the foundation of the unconscious. Wow. <laughs> you know the the only other time I've ever heard anyone talk like this about music was when Daniel Barenboim. I had the pleasure of. Meeting Daniel Barenboim, and、uh, when he was talking about Wagner、oh, and how Wagner knew, <laughs> Wagner knew what made people tick,、yep. and he knew exactly what to write to suck you in and never let you go. And that's the only other time I've ever heard anyone talk about music and about music composition in this way.、Mm. And it, it was it was over ten years ago that I I had this, but it just all came back to me hearing you talk about it in this way. It all came back to me. So I'm curious. Then, are there certain sounds, certain harmonies? What is it in music that you've discovered that you know? Okay, these are the things that resonate with. The widest group of people.、Mm. This、mm-hmm. is what I can write. 
that's going to touch the greatest group of people? Mm. I, I love this question because, um, and, and I don't claim that I have an answer to it because every piece I write is really just another attempt uh, to solve an aesthetic problem that does not have a solution. Um, and so, for example, um, do you think we solved the problem that was uh, articulated from 2,000-something years ago? by Socrates and Plato's alike. Um, that what is happiness and what makes life worth living? Do I think we have solved it? <laughs> I think it's an, it, it, I think what you're getting at possibly is it's an eternal question that we always, that every generation strives to answer and that there isn't necessarily a right answer. Right, and the same aesthetic question is also still open uh, for composers. So, um, so I personally, I have this instrument that is my body, and it's a very particular instrument that I've trained it to be this way. Um, but some of my innate gift uh, comes from that I'm a symbolic thinker, which means I don't think in linear ways. And actually, thinking in linear ways is not like my weaknesses or anything. I just prefer another modality of, of processing sensory information so when I say symbolic thinking or feeling is actually a better word, you can't think your way through aesthetic problems. <laughs> and in the best possible uh, scenarios when all the stars line up for me, I might get to taste one little whiff of flow where everything just kind of effortless, effortlessly lock into its places. And it's almost like uh, a a f much superior force just you know took my hand and said just do this it doesn't make sense i'm like oh my god and it was it it would be like so i would be so relaxed i wouldn't even be thinking i wouldn't even be trying really hard it just kind of happens um so so when i think about what i can do uh, as a living composer today um, I think of Johann Sebastian Bach. And if people were come up to tell you, like, okay, I heard so much resonance in a canon piece, in, in a piece, let's say everybody knows, Tchaikovsky 6, for example. What is preventing me as an artist to say, what are they hearing that I'm not hearing? And can I tap into that? And through this process, then I am able to expand my perspectives as one individual, which is very, very limited. We'd like to think we know more and that we are more than just a mere individual. And I have James Baldwin in my court uh, for this perspective, is that the artist's ultimate mission is to be able to expand our perspectives to include millions of other perspectives. And this is how we get to create works such as what Shakespeare did. Shakespeare was an anonymous writer. Shakespeare didn't even feel he or she needed to, you know, claim who he or she was. And so this entire body of work is timeless, but at the time it could be marketed as timely. Mm. You see what I mean? Um, yeah. So so if I were to uh, center myself 
in my individuality. What ends up happening is that um, I then can invite, I can, I can like include all of the other millions of perspectives that I've either experienced myself or I have seen on people's faces in the audiences as I have studied and spent my life in classical music. And all I have to do is to say, what do I have, what do I have right now at this moment to help advance this mission just a little more? So I aspire my, I guess my long-term, uh, my, I guess my goal as, as, uh, as I sit down to write is that uh, can I show up for, for myself, first of all, and then for the people? And can I say something that they want to know more? They want to, they themselves want to hear more. Can I compose a piece that demands repeated listening? And can, can I tackle that fundamental aesthetic question that brought music to the center of the human consciousness? Can I contribute to that? Um, so these are the questions that I kind of think about a lot as I write. Um, I think it keeps me humble. It also, it, it, it's the kind of project that demands many, many lifespans. That's why um, in a culture that is, you know, demands very quick return of your investment, mm and in a scarcity culture especially, um, I, I think this kind of work often just kind of stay in the background a little bit, you know, just like Johann Sebastian Bach was doing this kind of work, uh, but in his lifetime, you know, it, it, was just, it was just not something that people appreciated as much as we do, but in his lifetime, mm. he was doing this essential work of just, can we just put one step further in this inquiry? Uh, this aesthetic inquiry that sustains the life force of the art form. I don't, I've never met another composer who's given an answer even close to that, yeah. really. Incredible. It's so incredible to have this insight into your mind mm -hmm. and the way you think about music and life and everything. Really, really. Thank you so much for sharing <laughs> all of this with us. I, and, and I love how much you're talking about the audience and how important they are, and how important listening is. And, you know, when we're thinking about, um, like, young people, and we're like, we need to, like, the next generation of, of musicians, it's creating the next generation, the next audience members, the next generation of who's in our audience, and having a thought process like that of, like, the audience is just involved in what's happening on stage, as the musicians are, is, I think, a perspective that a lot of uh, audiences feel like there's, like, a wall, between the stage and the audience and what all the stuff you're saying is like nope <laughs> that's not there there is no wall it is it is an exchange mm. between the audience and the musicians and I just think that that is really interesting to think about because I don't think a lot of people do mm. realize that thank you for saying that Rachel um I think the wall is down when the music is present mm -hmm. but the wall is always there there is a theatrical uh, wall because concert music, believe it or not, is still a stage art. Yeah, it's presenting as a stage art. Mm -hmm. So there is the uh, there there is the I guess the word is orator, the mm -hmm. 
you know, it's public speaking. Yeah. Okay, we're not trying to co- have a conversation. That's for after the concert. We're not having a conversation with our audience when the music is played. Mm-hmm. And the wall um, is, <laughs> the, the wall could be many, many things, right? There's just the whole barrier of the unknown, you know, people are, people are investing their time mm-hmm. and uh, the buying a ticket mm-hmm. to come and see something. So, um, but they also want to be elated. Okay, so this might be the perfect time that I bring in something uh, that I also been thinking about a lot is the chunky tomato <laughs> example. <laughs> okay, I can't wait to see where this is going. I don't like chunky tomatoes, just for the record. Exactly. So, um, so okay. So Malcolm Gladwell and uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Muskovsky or there's this this. It's been a while since since I look at these names, but. Uh, they did this whole research, okay, and then they the the whole chunky tomato thing changed the food industry forever. Mm. And I won't get into details because uh, Malcolm Gladwell's TED talk uh, would give you a, a lot of uh, that uh, detail of the of the res- uh, of the research and how that came about. Uh, but the moral of the story for us classical musicians um, is that okay. So in the end, we know audiences don't know what they want. Even if they tell you what they want, <laughs> they don't know what they want. Um, and uh, they don't even know what they would like to want, <laughs> right? Until all this, you know, 36 flavors of tomato sauce and uh, pasta spaghetti sauce is presented. And then they, they were like, what a third of people like chunky tomatoes? And nobody's even mentioned after all the focus groups, after all, you know, all these years and decades of R&D and all of that. Okay, nobody really knew. Okay, so um, what's the moral of the story for classical industry is that chunky tomato sauce in the end wins. And some $600 million later, it's still a tomato sauce. It's still made from tomato. It was not a teriyaki sauce that you put on the spaghetti that won the market. No, it's not. It's a tomato sauce. Mm. So I think, you know, as much as we are probably in the process in our field of creating this variety of the 36, 36 or 40 something flavors, and we need all that. This is, this is the next step that we are doing right now. And regardless of how it's being done and the growing pains of uh, doing this kind of work, the question is, will there be a Malcolm Gladwell in classical music industry to step in and say, now we need to have somebody to go in and collect the data. Mm. Now that we have all these living composers, it's a very vibrant time. Mm-hmm. It's certainly better than when I first came to the United States. Opportunities are more. Look at the Virginia Truman Foundation. You know, we, we have such a, a, an amazing force of uh, composers who happen to be female mm-hmm. are on the scene now. Yeah. So we are in this uh, movement and to create all these flavors and to present to the audiences. So in the presenting organization, what I see lacking, and this, this refers back to the wall mm-hmm. you're describing, is that can we be honest with our audiences what new music really is? Mm. 
new music, and I'm speaking from my own personal experience, is that I'm just so lucky that I was not in the spotlight when I wrote my first few orchestral pieces because they were just they were just disasters. <laughs> um, and because the art form is so rich and it demands so much mileage in the work, in the study, in the in the honing of the craft, in the honing of the artistic material, even just to be able to do it tolerably well. It takes decades for a composer such as myself to be able to go up to a audience and just say, oh, would you bear with me? Because what you're witnessing um, is, is a product of my learning experience and I'm really just at the door. And would you tell me what you hear? So I think, I think it's really dangerous for artistic institutions to present composers' um, work um, as master or like perfect mm. because then the audience has the pressure, especially I did as an audience member, oh, this is supposed to be amazing, mm. but I don't resonate with it. And it's okay. It should be okay that yeah. I don't resonate with it. Yeah. But then somehow I was left with the impression that I was stupid, mm. that I didn't get what the, what, you know, my home orchestra was in New York Philharmonic. And I'm like, oh, New York Philharmonic thinks this is like supposed to be amazing. Um, but it did not resonate with me. Mm -hmm. And so if this kind of energy gets repeated too much, mm. um, and if, let's say, a lot of people right, get this message, slowly, slowly, the slow drip mm -hmm. of these psychological barriers, that's what makes the wall mm -hmm. that you're describing, yeah. which, um, you know, it, it really just takes a very simple, um, here's, here's what I've been, if the composer, uh, such as myself, you know, if I had the opportunity yeah. back then to just relate this to my audiences, um, like I'm, I'm, here's the struggles that um, I try to overcome in this composition, mm -hmm. or here's a set of problems that I'm wondering out loud mm. in this piece that I'm presenting to you. Yeah. It's nowhere near perfect. It's nowhere near finished. I don't know that I'll ever be able to finish a composition. Um, I can try to do better and to solve a few problems that I'm unable to do right now in my next piece. But right now, this is the best I can present mm -hmm. um, to you as a living composer. Yeah. Wow. It's so interesting because, you know, we, we use the word masterworks yeah. to describe, and most orchestras yeah. do. I was just thinking about that. We use the word masterworks yeah. to describe <laughs> our classical series, exactly to your point. Yeah. Whoa, this orchestra is stating that the pieces on this concert are masterpieces, mm -hmm. and yet not mm -hmm. everyone is going to resonate that with them. Now, from my perspective, you know, for, as a musician, like I know, okay, I'm not going to love every piece. And some of the pieces that I love, not everybody else is going to love. I adore the music of Rafe Vaughn Williams. Not many other American conductors like his music, probably as much as I do. But... I love his music. It resonates with me in a mm -hmm. way that no one else's music does. And I hate 
the music of George Frederick Handel. And yet so many people <laughs> want to hear the Messiah at Christmas. And I'm like, oh, you take your Messiah. I'll go hear Vaughn Williams' Hodier. Like it, but it's so fascinating. We in the, in the industry are like, okay, right, it's yeah. okay if we don't like everything that we hear. It's okay. But the people in the audience are not necessarily thinking yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, that's and and we so often tell um, and I, this this idea with perfection or what is like a masterpiece and all of that of you know dealing with young people in a youth symphony and they get so worked up when something's not perfect and the fact that they messed up and we're constantly telling them it's never going to be perfect. There is no such thing as a perfect performance. And then, like to your point, then we go to these concerts and say, well. I didn't like that. What's wrong with me? Or I don't understand it. So I must not be a great musician because I don't get this new piece. Or what was this orchestra thinking? Why would they even, you know, program something like that? I think it's like this flawed mentality that, you know, we have like this idea of like, we have to strive to be perfect. And I think what you said is like, we're just like, it's never finished. We're just striving to to be and to do something that's going to resonate and that will last and speak to the human condition for longer than our own lifetimes. And I, I think, I'm so glad yeah. you're saying this yeah. um, because, you know, a lot of, uh, like I said, in the first part of our interview today is that music is the greatest metaphor of the human condition yeah. because how many of us uh, suffer from uh, imposter syndrome <laughs> and uh, perfectionism and, you know, in at the end of the day, um, those who are in the position, you know, it's more of a reflection. If, if let's say, a collective of people um, decide to present classical music as great, the greatest, the, the master, the perfect works, it's actually more of a reflection, um, sometimes, not all the time. Uh, more of a re reflection of what they really wanted them to be or what they really wanted themselves to be. And that's a very human condition to have, all of us, myself included. You know, I used to suffer from also, and this all rises from insecurities, which is, again, it makes you human to feel insecure because we're a very, very vulnerable species. We've always been the underdog, and there there's, has been danger literally everywhere and we're we're even wired to be a species that is a predicting machine basically and mm. we're kind of we have to we have to predict all kinds of situations that you know and that's kind of innate everybody has that so um so i guess what gave me um some insight into my own process is that i began to feel the trust that is in the field. Because believe it or not, uh, my career is actually, I am very proud of the career uh, that I've had so far. Um, and uh, you know, some people might say that I'm kind of quiet, I kind of keep it to myself or you know, whatever. But, you know, but the kind of career that I had, you know, I've been surrounded by people who really see me for who I am. Mm. And so when, and I used to, you know, I used to be kind of complete, I have a complete lack of self-doubt. And then I just remember, you know, working with orchestras and uh, on projects, and it's like, there are some people, I just know, as soon as I met them, if I mess up, it's okay. It's not the end of the world. Yeah. I'm not going to die. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. Yeah. laughs> Although that was the fear. 
Yeah. Oh my God! If if this if this piece is not perfect, it's gonna be the end of my career. You know,、yeah. and this this thought is always was always there. And then I met,、um, and there's a very long list of people who already work in our industry who has shown up to see who I am, and so、mm-hmm. I felt very seen and very safe to just do you know whatever. And so slowly. Um, I learn more from what didn't happen in my previous pieces, and but I get to hear them, I get to hear them, I get to experience, I get to see the faces of the musicians who are playing them. Oh, if they feel unhappy playing this interval, then I know now, I know now not to do that. Yeah, you know, and then I see audiences who are you know twitching during、uh, my piece. I'm like, okay. This moment, I probably lost them.、Mm-hmm. Let me think about that. So, in my next piece, how can I do better to maintain that momentum、mm-hmm. so that they're with me every step of the way? It's all from these、uh, artistic organizations who have worked with me and to give me this opportunity to be in person with musicians, audiences,、mm-hmm. you know, music directors, and that's. Where I grow the most is to be in the field, is to be with the music making environment, not just alone in my studio. Yeah.、Um, and I enjoy this because I learn the most by showing up next to musicians, by talking to audiences,、uh, and by working with music directors,、mm. and to get to know what their hopes and dreams are and how we can all collaborate.、Yeah. There is、um, such a huge aspect of psychology in、absolutely. in all of this、yeah. that that the and and it, you're you're almost it, you're almost a, a scientific researcher. You're part scientific researcher、yeah. in this process. Oh, I am. Yeah, I, yeah. exactly. I, I am. You're collecting data <laughs> through every time you hear a piece performed. You go to rehearsals. You go to the concert. You're collecting data.、Yeah. I'm a card carrying creativity scholar. <laughs> I have a PhD in uh, uh, music composition, but my research is very interdisciplinary.、Um, so I have a PhD from NYU, and I spent eleven years just、um, tackling a, a topic、um, that I personally feel that it might help a lot of people, not just scholars, to open a few doors of actionable. Items, actionable, implementable items, which is to actually incorporate,、uh, to put music in 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 the larger sense of the humanity, and、uh, especially neuroscience, especially psychology. You know, there there has been a dawn of、uh, equipments and tools that we have now that there's so much data,、mm-hmm. and there's not enough people to interpret the data.、Um, so, but we already know so much more. Than just twenty years ago, about how humans,、uh, our human condition, or how、uh, how how our brain works, how our psyche works,、um, and that's kind of like the day to day stuff that makes you know. And and classical music is not exempt、uh, from the human condition, and it's part of it. I would love because so you're here in person this weekend, and I would love to hear from you about the piece that we're playing. 
um, uh, Symphonic Overture, America the Beautiful. I was privileged enough. Matthew and I were both on Wednesday night. Um, privileged enough to be at the the rehearsal for it and we're sitting I'm sitting we're sitting at the back of the stage behind the timpani and the basses um listening to your piece just both going ha like it's so we were it's so good I was we were both freaking out a little bit like just looking at each other going like <laughs> so you know it makes all the more sense yeah, everything you've said, said today makes this piece makes, makes this piece make all the more sense because i'm like god if, if everybody doesn't leap out of their seats into thunderous applause <laughs> after this so thing good. like uh, they're dead souls out there I mean, it's, it's amazing and yeah. and the orchestra of course plays it oh, so, play well. so well i mean oh, and the soloists the, the principal players who get the fugue subject yeah. i mean it's amazing but truly i'm like this piece has an impact yeah. on the human soul like this piece speaks to a deep recesses of the human soul that are just gonna really blow everybody away yeah. oh wow I'm, I'm so touched you're saying this it's so good <laughs> because um and uh, speaking of my research emotions are physical emotion is not something that just lives in our heads yeah and kept in our heads kept in the skull and so um the reaction i just saw you animate the both yeah, of yeah. you um it, I, and i'm so touched by it and again when an audience member or when a musician uh, anybody who say to you i'm really touched by a piece they're, they're saying this this is personal this this is yeah. physical mm -hmm. uh, and we've affected someone uh in this positive way um something else i was thinking about a lot is uh amy cuddy a uh, psychologist out of uh, Harvard. She's still probably teaching at Harvard. Uh, so uh, she, so she introduced this idea to me that kind of completely shifted my mindset about the energy that's behind my create creativity. Mm -hmm. um, is that there's a difference between competence and warmth, mm -hmm. and in her lifelong research, uh, warmth with competence is what gives that leadership is what gives that um is what gives um that whole uh i don't even have a word for it that magic <laughs> that magic of the pieces that sustained our art form it reaches somehow but the warmth part and um I have to credit uh, some of the musicians that I've interacted. Again, I, I keep going back to musicians and musicianship. Um, is that, you know, there there are ways of uh, making music that okay, you you're very competent, you have perfect technique or whatever. Um, but um, some musicians, you know, it's the same note, no, but the, but when they play it, it sounds affectionate. Yeah. It reaches you, and it's beyond the frequencies, and it's there is something more that's beyond just the that just just the physics of the frequencies or whatever it is, right? And and I it, it took me years to even give myself credit. Why do I practice my instrument? Why do I want to? you know, sit through all this laborious exercise and, and 
to hold my craft because I want to be able to. There is there. I know there's a love. There's a lot of love. There's a lot of affection uh, that I want to offer the world, and I want to offer my audiences. But if I don't have the chops to deliver that note, just like those musicians who has inspired me, you know, I, and and they can just. They can just close their eyes, and it it seems so effortless. It seems so easy. They can just deliver a note that is so full of affection, so beautiful. Like, um, if if somehow um, our listening、uh, could recognize that,、um, don't you think it'll just be it, at least it'll just be a, an amazing day <laughs> to have to be in the presence.、Yeah. Of such mastery, and so this is kind of <laughs> something、oh, I sit down every day, and then I'm like, okay, how tense am I? Do,、uh, am I uncomfortable? You know, can I be relaxed? And can I just feel okay?、Uh, how? Where is my chops? You know, it, it took me almost two decades to feel like every once in a while, I am the luckiest person because I get to be in a world of absolute freedom. And then I can put my finger on something that says, "Aha! I believe this moment. This moment is real. It's genuine, and it's an honest reflection of who I am and who I want to be."、Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and I don't know what more is, what else in the world is more rewarding than that?、Yeah. Um, and to be able to. And so my dream、uh, for my life、uh, is to be able to deliver、um, this. To the audiences, to the people who come to、uh, hear my music, yeah,、um, so so that they can walk away feeling like, oh wow, the way I feel, it, it I'm not alone in this world to feel this way, and they might not know what they really wanted to feel,、mm-hmm. but if I could provide something that they could walk away, I didn't know that I even have those feelings. Oh wow! I actually like it, and I want to come back for more. Do you think you will still be worried about box office if everybody did that?、Mm-hmm. And they'll spread the word for you. You don't, you don't, you don't have to spend money making huge posters. Yeah, yeah. They'll just come. Wow! <laughs> I just want to sit in it for a second. Like, <laughs> oh man, it's. It's this i it's this idea of、um, life. I don't. Life just feels busy. I've felt very busy for the past few months. I think. Well, you've been, very, been busy very busy for the past、it's, few there's months. There's been a lot. You know, I felt. But like when we are just on, we're just so busy, and we don't take the time to be ourselves. Not just like doing what we do, but like actually being. It's you. You won't get a listening experience like that. You like if you're, and I feel like in our society, so few times do people take the time to just be, and so there is a really good opportunity at a concert when you're sitting down. You don't have to do anything else. You're just here to sit. If we encourage our audiences to say, "Okay, everyone, we're about to just sit in here. We're about to just experience something together. Just be. Everyone, just feel and just be. And if we could." Find a way to convey that to our audiences at the start of a concert. Then what you said, they'll spread the word for us. 
Nathan's mm. job in marketing is going to become a whole lot easier. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's. Or dare we say obsolete. Well, no, we'll it'll never Nathan. be obsolete. We need Nathan. Um, <laughs> but if we just took time to just be there. So, so I, I, I resonate a lot with what you're saying. And um, that, that's like kind of what I think about. I can, I can always return to music and I can always find emotional support and it's it's always there and the same pieces i've been listening to the same pieces over and over uh for you know majority of my life you know i'm i'm i've been in music professionally for 38 years this is my 38th year as a professional musician and after repeated listening i often hear things i didn't hear in the last decade or so and that's the power of these works that we've been calling the masterworks or the perfect, uh, perfect compositions or great yeah. works, whatever it is. How come every time I listen to it, I, I hear something new? What I'm hearing is my own progress as, uh, as I progress in life and my own little growth, a little bit at a time, maybe a few years at a time. Maybe I'm able to hear something that I... Uh, or do something, or uh, build something inside me that was previously not there. But that music has always been there. Mozart knew everything about me. I've never even met him. Wang Ji, we are going to now finish up by asking you the question we ask everybody at the end of their podcast episode. How do we orchestrate change? Um, so, um, here, here's, here's something that I actually really want to share with people who are listening to your show, people who care about the art form as much as I do. And I think there are a lot of folks out there who care about the art form. Um, you know, we live in a world where, um, solutions are fewer than the challenges. Mm. And it, it became so because matters of the heart can only be remedied by the knowledge of another heart. So the rib cages has to be gone, okay? Um, and we've been in trouble uh, for a long time because we create more tools than poetry. And so the, the change, the change that we all want to see happen, maybe there's one change that we all want to see happen. Uh, but what I see is um, the real changes. Think about how Johann Sebastian Bach changed Western classical music for the better forever. But he was an essential worker. By that, I mean, there are works that composers can do that can be groundbreaking. It can be, it can be. Um, but there, that's the tip of the iceberg. But someone like Bach, who was very industrious and prolific and humble, and he sits there day in, day out, creating thousands and thousands of works. And he created them for God as he signs some of his manuscripts. And um, he was, um, he suffered some reputation that were undesirable 
at his time. But that's the kind of work. It seems insignificant at the time. And so the change that I would love to see is uh, a field in classical music is that a few people um, would then um, take a look around and give um, someone like me who is doing the essential work. You know, I don't know that I can be groundbreaking. I can't predict the future. But all I'm doing is just putting one foot in front of another. And all I'm asking for um, is to, and, and it's already happening, start to happen, is to have work. So I get to hear my creations in the presence and so that it can be witnessed to have been born. And then from that, little by little, and perhaps I can be a small part of the change for the better for the art form. And that's actually really matters. I'm not sure how many people sees that this art form is gonna, it's much, much bigger than any of us individuals and our egos and our ambitions. It has survived all this time and it will continue to. Mm -hmm. So, so the little change I can do is to uh, create the kind of work that I believe in and that audience want to come back to and that people find rewarding to be with my music. Um, and I can, I can spend my lifetime trying to accomplish this. And if I could move the needle just a little bit, I would feel like this is a life worth living for me, you know. Thank you so, so, so much for being with us today on the podcast, for being with us this weekend, and for sharing everything you have shared with us. Truly, what a wonderful conversation, and it's been such a privilege to have it with you. Oh, thank you, Rachel and Matthew. Thank you for this opportunity, and, and um, this is so much fun. Ah, this, I didn't want this to end. I know. <laughs> Wang Ji, composer extraordinaire. Thank you. Thank it's you. been a pleasure. Thank you. Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams. Our audio engineer and mixer is Nathan Maslick with video and audio editing by Shoreline Media. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.